Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff. And I'm Lydia Brown, and we're producers of Where We Live. Do you appreciate the local programming and long-form conversations we bring to you on shows like Where We Live? Well, now's your chance to support it. If you enjoy what you hear, consider making a pledge of support today. Go online to wnpr.org donate. That's wnpr.org donate. And thanks. And thanks. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The last election season may have been dominated by Connecticut's gubernatorial race, but voters also elected other state constitutional officers. Coming up, we'll talk with Connecticut Attorney General-elect William Tong. According to the National Association of Attorneys General, the office serves as the chief legal advisor for states, representing them in legal disputes. But state attorneys general have also been taking on the federal government in recent years. Today we'll find out more about when attorneys general began wading into national issues. Will frustration over policies out of the Trump administration lead to even more legal challenges from Democratic state AGs? Connecticut Attorney General-elect William Tong promises a fight. More from him later. But first, uh, to give us more uh, history and context in how the role of the state attorney general has changed, joining us by phone is Paul Nolette. He's a political science professor at Marquette University, that's in Wisconsin, and author of Federalism on Trial, State Attorneys General and National Policymaking in Contemporary America. Paul, welcome to our show. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, when we think of attorney generals, uh, we think about them focusing on state-level politics. Uh, but when, are, when did we start to see this rise in, um, I guess, AG activism and partisanship wading into these national issues, Paul? Yeah, what, what I call sort of the big bang of AG activism, where it really began, was with the tobacco litigation in the late 1990s. That was really uh, one of the first times that AGs all 50 of them joined together to try to fundamentally alter the tobacco industry um, and some of the regulations that deal with uh, the tobacco industry. And so they signed this massive settlement with the the tobacco industry, um, all without any action on the part of Congress or the FDA or other federal actors. So I think that was the, the moment when AGs realized hey, if we work together, we can really make a, a sizable difference in national policy. I mentioned uh, a part of the definition of an attorney general through this national association as uh, the uh, chief legal advisor for a state. But with that uh, tobacco litigation uh, and others, uh, states seeing that it's really time to become the people's lawyer, so to speak? Yeah, and you, you'll hear a lot of AGs characterize their office in that way. Uh, so previously, I mean, going back a few decades, um, with the original conception of the office, it was really the state's lawyer. So you represent the state uh, and defend any state statutes against legal challenges that people might bring. AGs still do that. That's still part of their role. However, they have taken on this notion of the people's lawyer. So to really be aggressive in bringing environmental litigation, consumer protection litigation, um, and other sorts of lawsuits that are 
really representing the people of the state as opposed to just the state itself. And then when did we uh, begin to see attorneys general uh, getting involved in more partisan coalitions when they bring up these multi-state cases? Yeah, and that started right after the tobacco litigation. So in the early 2000s, in the early uh, years of the George W. Bush administration, we started seeing a lot more partisanship. So the tobacco litigation was a bipartisan effort. Republican and Democratic AGs were both involved in that. However, there were a lot of conservative AGs at the time who joined on to the lawsuit but were uncomfortable about it. They, they viewed this as AGs engaging in regulation through litigation. Uh, so it was shortly after the tobacco litigation that Republicans started the Republican Attorneys General Association. A couple years later, the Democrats followed with their own partisan organization. And throughout the W. Bush years and then Obama and now Trump, uh, the activity of AGs has gotten more and more partisan in nature, and those organizations have become more important. I believe uh, the number of lawsuits by coalitions of Democratic AGs against the Trump administration uh, just in 2017 were more than half the number of the uh, AG multi-state suits during Obama's entire presidency. Yeah, I mean, it's remarkable. The The last two years of the Obama administration, there was a sharp uptick in multi-state suits brought by Republican AGs against the Obama administration. But despite that, and despite really prominent cases like uh, against the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, that AGs spearheaded, uh, Democratic AGs, as you mentioned, have been extremely active in challenging the Trump administration. And in fact, if you look at both 2017 and then where we are now in 2018, the number of lawsuits is almost exactly the same uh, against the Trump administration as in the entire eight years of the Obama administration. So it's really gone um, considerably more aggressive, the Democratic AGs during the Trump years. I believe there's an anecdote from uh, the Texas AG, uh, now Governor General uh, Greg uh, Abbott, uh, who talked about uh, the work uh, um, challenging Obama in the latter years. Yes, and so he characterized his job as uh, I get up, I go to the office, and I sue Obama. That's what I do. Uh, so he he saw this role as being an aggressive one where he's not only active in Texas politics and policy, but very much an actor on the national stage pushing back against the, the federal government. And many Democratic AGs in the Trump years uh, view that role very much in a similar way. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Paul Nolet, a political science professor at Marquette University in Wisconsin. Uh, today, as we talk about the role of state attorneys general, uh, coming up, we're going to hear from Connecticut Attorney General-elect William Tong, but we're learning a little bit about how this role of uh, attorney general has changed in recent decades uh, uh, as uh, these, uh, these uh, top state attorneys have waded into national issues. You can join our conversation, too, 860 Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, we just came off a, a big election, and the Democrats have picked up four attorney general offices uh, in this past election. So there's now uh, 27 uh, Democratic uh, at state attorneys general uh, nationwide. Uh, tell us, uh, what does this mean in terms of when we see the activism by uh, Democratic AGs in recent year, in the recent a year and a half, two years, is that a validation for them that the work that they're doing is what the people want to see? It is. So, 
as, as I mentioned, Democratic AGs have been very aggressive in, in targeting the, the Trump administration, and they gained four seats out of this election. Um, so I think, if anything, that's an indication to them that suing an unpopular president or relatively unpopular president is a good thing for their political careers in addition to perhaps being good policy in their view. Um, so I think the fact that Democrats now have a majority of the AG seats it just means that uh, that this sort of activity of going after the Trump administration, I think, will uh, be very similar to what we've already seen in the first two years. Uh, remind us some of the multi-case uh, lawsuits against the, either the fed, well, no, federal agency or uh, the Trump administration themselves. Can you walk us through some of the uh, specific ones in the past yeah. year? Yes, I mean, there, and there are a lot of them covering a lot of different aspects of policy. One of the most... Um, prominent areas is in, in environmental policy, where a lot of Democrats are frustrated with the Environmental Protection Agency um, and what they see as lack of action on climate change and other important environmental issues. That's been the source of a lot of litigation. Right from the start, though, Democratic AGs were very aggressive in going to court uh, against, for instance, Trump's uh, travel ban. So on immigration, they brought a number of lawsuits there. But it actually, if you look at the full picture of what they're suing on, it covers, I mean, almost everything conceivable uh, in terms of regulation coming out of Washington. That includes net neutrality. Uh, that includes some lawsuits that target Trump himself. So the Maryland and D.C. AG are currently suing Trump on a previously obscure part of the Constitution known as the Emoluments Clause, um, essentially saying that Trump is using his office for financial gain in a way that violates the Constitution. So if you look at the full picture of lawsuits, it covers a lot of ground. And a lot of these, these cases are still um, going forward in court. Uh, walk us through um, you know, how these multi-state lawsuits are typically uh, brought, because uh, we, you know, we often hear about uh, Connecticut's uh, AG uh, signing on to a multi-state coalition. Uh, there are cases where Connecticut um, is the, the first state uh, to bring up a, a suit, and you see other states uh, signing on. So what does that mean exactly, and who's really in charge of these uh, lawsuits? Yeah, it, it depends on the policy area. There are some AG offices that uh, their staff really specializes in environmental politics, some on um, like tech policy, so net neutrality and such. Uh, but what happens is one, one or two, typically, AGs will be the leaders of the effort. So they're going to take the, uh, the primary responsibility of putting together legal documents and putting together a coalition. Very often amongst Democrats, that's the New York Attorney General, um, who's very, very active, the most active of all uh, AG offices. And so what they'll do is they'll put out communications, usually emails and such, uh, and say, fellow Democratic AGs, would you like to sign on to this lawsuit? Um, and it's been a pretty stable coalition so far with a lot of these, you know, now lawsuits numbering in the dozens, you typically get 20, 21 um, other AGs signing on to this. So I would expect that to, to continue in the next couple of years.
and how uh, partisan has it gotten uh, in the last year and a half or so? I, I know you've used the term uh, uh, collective strike force, uh, where you have uh, Democratic AGs the minute uh, the president uh, tweets something about uh, possibly an executive order uh, that he uh, wants to implement, and they're very quick uh, to say that they're going to challenge this particular uh, policy. Yeah, and it, it's become much, much more partisan, um, their activity on the national stage. It used to be, going back uh, even a, a couple decades, three decades, uh, when some of the multi-state litigation was first becoming a, a, a thing on the national stage, the activity largely was, was bipartisan. But, but now, um, like you mentioned, it's really like strike forces, Republican coalitions and Democratic coalitions that are already formed and ready to go as soon as the, the federal government acts. So that, that's been a real change in the last, especially four or five years, that um, hardened partisanship amongst the AGs. Again, coming up, we're going to hear from Connecticut Attorney General-elect William Tong. Uh, Paul, uh, because you've been uh, focusing uh, your uh, uh, research and analysis of AGs for some time, how would you characterize the work that Connecticut attorney generals have done, uh, starting with uh, now U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, currently we have uh, George Jepson, and now uh, William Tong will be taking the lead in January? Yeah, especially for a smaller state, the Connecticut AG's office has been very nationally prominent. And in fact, this goes back even before Blumenthal to Joe Lieberman, um, who was one of the initial pioneers amongst AGs in transforming the office into something that focused more on national policy and not just state policy. Um, and then with Blumenthal, who was a longtime uh, occupant of the Connecticut AG office, uh, he brought numerous lawsuits, including against the George W. Bush administration. And so he was another part of this story of the AGs becoming more and more prominent. So despite its relatively small size, Connecticut uh, really punches above its weight when it comes to uh, AGs on the national stage. And you anticipate that to continue or strengthen under uh, the leadership of William Tong? I think that's going to continue. Um, I think the... the Connecticut office is very savvy. There's a lot of very skilled attorneys in that office um, who are going to be working on numerous issues, including state-focused issues, but also some of this national litigation. So I, I fully expect that to continue um, as William Tong comes into office. My guest today here on Where We Live is Paul Nolet, political science professor at Marquette University and author of Federalism on Trial, State Attorneys General and National Policymaking in Contemporary America. He's going to stay with us as we continue our conversation right after the break when we're going to hear from uh, William Tong. And you can join us too, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about how state attorneys general have become more involved in national policies and politics in recent decades. My guest is Paul Nolet, who says this trend goes further back than just the Trump administration. Uh, state AGs challenged the Obama administration in the latter years. And Nolet says it was Congress back in the 70s and 80s that started to 
quote, empower attorneys general by, by providing their offices money to investigate such things as antitrust and anti-fraud allegations. Then there was a big tobacco settlement that changed everything, showing that AGs could bring successful suits that represented the people in their states. Uh, Paul Nolet, a political science professor from Marquette University, uh, on the line with us. And joining us now in studio is Connecticut Attorney General-elect William Tong. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Lucy. Great to see you and great to be with you, Paul. So I wanted to ask you about what we've been talking about so far, um, uh, uh, about how uh, uh, state AGs have become more active in national politics. Is this something that you plan on continuing? Uh, I do. And and frankly, it'll be largely up to the great associate and assistant attorneys general and our staff. As Professor Nolet said, Connecticut has um, a great team of 200 lawyers and, and 315 combined personnel um, who have a great reputation across the country. I was just at the National Association of Attorneys General, and and um, Professor Nolet um, characterized it pretty well. We're known as punching way above our weight, and that's because of this extraordinary legacy from General Lieberman to General Blumenthal to General Jepson. And uh, it's pretty daunting to follow in those shoes, but um, they've laid out a pretty strong roadmap about how a modern attorney general um, is empowered to fight for the people of our state. Uh, tell us about some of the issues that uh, you've seen in the Trump administration that you um, find particularly uh, problematic and, uh, you know, so maybe some of the uh, actions that you hope to take uh, when you take the full role of SAG. Well, um, as Paul mentioned, one of the areas in which we've been extraordinarily active is in the environment. So as soon as President Trump took office, he wanted to make coal great again. So they began to loosen um, emission standards in states like West Virginia and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And the problem we learned is that those states are literally upwind of Connecticut. And they started shooting emissions in the air and polluting downwind uh, into Connecticut. And Connecticut joined with a number of other states and ran into federal court uh, and, and earned some victories to stop the Trump administration um, you know, from eviscerating what are known as good labor laws to prevent those states from polluting downwind. So that's one great example. Another great example um, is the Trump administration has been trying to tie unconstitutionally and unlawfully um, certain federal grants, criminal justice grants, to the types of state laws we have here in Connecticut. And so there's been some argument by the Trump administration that because certain states uh, are more thoughtful and welcoming and open to immigrants than, other, than others, and, and Connecticut is one of those, that somehow Connecticut has, uh, quote unquote, sanctuary type policies um, that the Trump administration wants to go after. And they've, they've tied federal grants um, to, to changing, to forcing us to change our laws. And, and Connecticut just won a big victory along with other states. Uh, in preserving access to those grants, there's their so-called burn grants uh, for criminal justice activities and to keeping uh, people here in Connecticut safe and dis safe and disassociating those grants from uh, our immigration uh, related loss here in Connecticut. Uh, again, uh, William Tong is in studio with me. He's Connecticut Attorney General-elect as we talk about attorney uh, general activism, uh, more state attorneys general uh, engaging in uh, roles where they're challenging, whether it's a federal agency or uh, an executive order or policy change from the Trump administration. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Um, attorney General-elect Tong, what would you say to some of our listeners uh, or and, and people who voted for uh, President Trump 
Trump in the state of Connecticut who um, may not approve of these um, challenges to what the president is trying to do in Washington? Well, I, I think, you know, people want to make this um, on both sides of the aisle. They want to make this about Donald Trump and his administration. And to a certain extent, it is. And they want to make them national issues. But really, um, these are local issues. And I think people demand action where um, the rights and, and the health and safety of people here in our state are implicated. So as I said during the campaign and now as I take office, these are not really purely national issues. These are local issues, just like uh, the tobacco litigation was about kids smoking in Connecticut. It was about Joe Camel and the tobacco companies trying to push cigarettes on children. We're seeing that now with vaping and Juul and kids selling and, and giving Juul to each other in schools. And that's become, uh, you know, a near epidemic and crisis in, in our schools. And, and with uh, 12, 10, and 7 at home. I have a little scratchy throat today because everybody's sick at home, but we're getting better. But when I have three little ones, I'm really concerned about that. So people understand that these national cases, and to the extent they implicate the president, um, they are local in that they impact our everyday lives. Let me give you one big example. Um, Professor Nolet mentioned the Affordable Care Act litigation, and that uh, is an effort by my Republican colleagues. Um, 18 of them and led by Ken Paxton in Texas federal court. Ken Paxton is the Texas attorney general seeking to gut the Affordable Care Act. And Connecticut has joined with a number of other states in pushing back on that. And that affects thousands and thousands of Connecticut families that depend on the Affordable Care Act for their health care. So whether you voted for Donald Trump uh, or not, um, people need access to health care. And I think everybody understands that. I want to turn back to Professor Paul Nolet again from Marquette University. Um, we heard uh, Attorney General-elect Tong mentioning that this is something that he campaigned against, that uh, there are certain things within the Trump administration that uh, he will fight against because uh, they do impact us here locally. But not all Democratic AGs uh, uh, chose to campaign against Trump. Can you walk us through some of those? Yeah, so it really depended on state, I think. I think some um, candidates for the office, Democratic candidates, talked a lot more about uh, Donald Trump and how the AG's office would be sort of the first line of defense against um, illegal or unconstitutional actions by the Trump administration. So in New York, for instance, Tish James, the incoming AG, um, that was a big part of her campaign um, in New York. There were other AGs who did focus more on talking about state issues. So here in Wisconsin, for instance, uh, the now general-elect, uh, um, the Democrat coming into office, um, didn't talk too much about Trump during the, during the election and talked more about issues like the opioid crisis, for instance, which is very much a national issue but also a local issue um, as well. And so some AGs put more emphasis on the national role However, uh, increasingly, whether they talk about it or not on the, on the campaign trail, it has become a, a much bigger part of the AG's role. Uh, William Tong, uh, again, as you uh, take over as attorney general uh, for the state of Connecticut, um, do you plan on devoting more resources uh, uh, to challenge the Trump administration? Can you give us uh, some examples? Well, again, I think we're going to be very aggressive on all these issues, and, and as, as much as it um, may be easy to identify these cases as being about Trump and his administration. 
uh, as Professor Nolet said, Josh Calls, a friend of mine, he's the new attorney general in Wisconsin. He's facing extraordinary challenges right now as his Republican-led legislature seeks to gut his powers, which um, uh, obviously is a direct attack on the rule of law and is very concerning. Um, but when they talk about the opioid crisis, these are issues that they're not issues that we choose. They choose us. Right. And and we need to take action. And Connecticut is on the executive committee of the National Opioid Investigation. And that's despite having a major major opioid producer here in Connecticut, Purdue Pharma in my home city of Stanford. And we've never been afraid to take action against um, businesses, whether they are located here or elsewhere. And so, um, again, there's so much more beyond what the president is doing. But but what the president does impacts so many other things. So we talk about, as I mentioned earlier, criminal justice grants. When we talk about the Affordable Care Act, when we talk about the environment, and then we talk about the opioid crisis. You know, is the president, uh, is the Department of Justice, our national law enforcement resources being focused on the opioid crisis? And what else can we do? What more, what more can we do? And I think that's an answer for state attorneys general to answer. Uh, Paul Nolet, uh, before uh, we end, I just wanted to ask you, as uh, uh, you hear again from particular states uh, that are challenging um, policy or executive orders from the Trump administration, is there any risk for retaliation? Well, I, I think the um, we may be seeing that more, at least in some states that are closely contested politically. Um, so as General-elect Tong mentioned, Josh Call, the incoming Democratic AG in Wisconsin, um, right now is facing uh, losing some considerable power uh, in the AG's office from the Republican-controlled le- state legislature, um, who are concerned that Call would pull out of that ACA lawsuit that came up earlier in the program, um, that Brad Schimmel, the, uh, the one incumbent to lose in the 2018 elections, was also uh, a leader of. So I think the... W- especially as AGs have taken on more of a role and I think have become really important players, both on the state level and on the national level, that you, I, I would not be surprised to see more of this sort of partisan activity where legislatures or governors of the opposite party really uh, attacking the AG and trying to limit his or her powers. Paul Nellett, again, is a political science professor at Marquette University in Wisconsin, author of Federalism on Trial, State Attorneys General, and National Policymaking in Contemporary America. Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. When we come back from the break, we're going to continue our conversation with William Tong, Connecticut Attorney General-elect. We're also going to hear from a former Republican Attorney General of Indiana. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Do you enjoy the wide variety of conversations we bring you here on Where We Live? It's the end of the year membership campaign. Please support WMPR Connecticut Public Radio with a pledge of support. There's a number to call. You can also go online and hear two of my colleagues to tell you more. Hi, I'm Carmen Baskoff here with Lydia Brown. We're taking a quick moment to ask you to think about why you love public radio. If you're listening right now, you're probably a fan of local programming like Where We Live. Each week, we work hard to put together shows that connect you to the issues, events, and people in our state and our communities. If you appreciate this work, we hope you'll become a part of this community that's Connecticut Public Radio. You can make a pledge of support by going online to wnpr.org donate. That's WNPR.org slash donate. Thank you very much. And now back to where we live. 
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been focusing on the role of a state attorney general. In studio with me is Connecticut Attorney General-elect William Tong. And uh, joining us now by phone is Greg Zeller. He's the former Republican attorney general for the state of Indiana. Uh, Greg, welcome to our show. That's good to be with you. We've been talking about uh, AG activism uh, in recent decades. Uh, You were quoted in a U.S. News & World Report article uh, as saying that AG activism is actually, quote, a reflection of the failure of the legislative branch to check executive authority. Can you talk more about what you meant? Well, when I was attorney general, there were a number of attorneys general across the country that challenged uh, then uh, President Obama's executive orders. Uh, and I had told people at the time, you know, this is really not a policy issue. It's how we challenge uh, the executive branch's use of authority. No one really wants kind of an unconstitutional. So it was, you know, bring it to the courts and let's uh, uh, see whether this is within the president's power. Now we see the uh, Democrats bring the same types of challenges. And frankly, I think it, people should recognize that it's a it's a healthy part of our checks and balances to have uh, this brought to the court to see whether now uh, President Trump is over exceeded his authority. So uh, that was kind of the point I was making. Uh, when you were AG uh, in uh, Indiana, what uh, what did you consider before signing on to these multi-state lawsuits against uh, the former Obama administration? Well, the first thing was whether it uh, affected our state government. So. Uh, in the Affordable Care Act challenge, I didn't sign on to the, um, uh, the, the entire case, but only that portion uh, that reflected the fact that the federal government would have withheld all of our Medicaid funding uh, if we didn't create a federal exchange. That was actually the part of the case that we succeeded on. So now states have their own sovereignty. They get to decide whether they will create their own state exchange or whether they'll have the federal government create an exchange in the state. Uh, William Tong, what's your take on um, Mr. Zeller's characterization of this uh, role of the AG being part of the checks and balances? I think General Zeller is right that it's a check on the executive, um, both at the you know state and national level. And it's it's uh, the interplay and the unique role that state attorneys general have, um, you know, both to use their opportunity and their powers to go into court um, and to assert the rights of people in their state, but also to go into a legislature and to encourage a legislature um, to change a law to better protect people here in Connecticut and across the country. I think, as General Zeller knows, the National Association of Attorneys General is an extraordinarily effective organization. I was just at their meeting in Charleston where on a bipartisan basis, uh, 50 state attorneys general plus the territories came together and talked about a number of important initiatives, including the opioid investigation, the generic uh, drug price fixing case. Um, We talked some about the the legacy of tobacco. And, And it's not just state AGs coming together as a check on the executive branch and executive power, but also uh, a check on the market when when the market does not function properly and prejudices consumers. And I'm sure General Zeller had a role in that when he served 
and that's what state AGs do to get today on a bipartisan basis. Uh, tell us more within uh, the state of Connecticut uh, AG office uh, um, going after pharmaceutical companies uh, in terms of, of the, the price fixing for uh, generic drugs. Well, Gen- General Jepson has been an extraordinary leader on, on this issue nationally. And uh, as the former president of the Democratic Attorneys General Association and the National Attorneys General Association, General Jepson has played um, an outsized role, again, punching way above our weight in leading these national coalitions. And um, uh, there's been recent coverage just in the past 24 hours about Connecticut's lead role as the lead p- plaintiff in going after brazen price fixing in the generic drug industry. Fully 88% of all prescriptions written in this country are for generics. It's a $90 billion industry. And and we've found far-reaching um, cartel-like behavior, perhaps the biggest private sector cartel in history among, among 300 uh, different firms uh, engaging in outright fixing of prices that result in some, some routine uh, drugs like albuterol being 3,400% higher uh, for consumers than they ought to be. And, and these are the fights that um, Connecticut has led the way on. Again, extraordinarily big shoes for us to follow, but I know that our team of lawyers is up to it because they've led the, they've led the way. Uh, Greg Zeller, uh, your uh, perspective on that particular action that um, multiple state attorneys general are taking versus uh, possibly uh, when they challenge uh, acts of Congress, uh, looking at uh, tax reform uh, being one of them. It's one thing to challenge uh, an executive order within a president's administration, but if this is something that Congress has acted on, is it in the best interest for uh, AGs to to challenge those as well? I think it is. And um, attorney... General-elect Wong is uh, is good to point out the oversized role that Connecticut's had. Uh, General Jepson, you know, brought uh, a group of us together on the S and P case, and I think his um, his ability to do that across any kind of political divide or uh, let's say regional divide that sometimes infects the attorneys general. Uh, he was a voice that people. Uh, listened to and, you know, frankly, brought a lot of clout, not just to uh, Connecticut, but to the group of attorneys general. I think when it is a bipartisan effort, the credibility of the case is raised. Uh, it, there, Unfortunately, there are some cases where uh, strictly the Democrats or the Republicans are the only ones signing on. And I think even though they may be legitimate cases, uh, it sometimes taints it with a little bit of partisanship and people don't have quite the same level of uh, confidence and respect. In terms of challenging the federal government, I do think uh, that it's really the failure of Congress to function properly uh, that has led both uh, Republicans previously and now Democrats to have to uh, raise the challenges to make sure uh, the federal government has not overextended itself. Uh, And again, people should ask themselves whether they support unconstitutional exercise of power. Uh, So I think it's unfortunate the attorneys general have had to play this role, uh, but frankly, I think it's something that's critical to the checks and balances. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, before we let you go, uh, Greg Zeller, again, former Republican uh, Attorney General for the state of Indiana. Uh, do you think, though, that some of these uh, cases that um, uh, AGs have brought uh, forth uh, to challenge uh, the administration or federal agencies, uh, these partisan um, collaborations, add to the polarization we're seeing? Well, unfortunately, there there is more polarization, you know, in all of politics. So I think the the unfortunate part of uh, politics in the Washington uh, arena has spread into uh, the role of attorneys general when they come to acting in a national capacity. Uh, I do think that people really should see, you know, beyond just the politics. And again, when a, a legitimate challenge is raised, uh, I used to tell people when Indiana gets sued, uh, I never criticize. I really support the fact that people are going to raise these challenges and make sure that the state of Indiana acts within its authority. No one should really fear a challenge that's a legitimate legal challenge to make sure uh, government is doing things right. We're not a people that trust government. Uh, you're really meant to challenge it uh, when it's necessary and make sure that government is staying within its proper role. Greg Zeller, again, is former Republican Attorney General for the state of Indiana. Thanks for joining us here on Where We Live. Sure, and I wish uh, William all the best in his new uh, exciting role as Attorney General for Connecticut. Thank you, General. Uh, again, that's uh, William Tong, uh, Connecticut Attorney General-elect here on Where We Live. Uh, we've just got a few minutes, and I wanted to ask you about some of your state-level policy goals, uh, Attorney General-elect Tong, including uh, I understand you have plans to ask the legislature uh, to um, allow you to establish a civil rights division. Tell us about that idea and, and why you think that's necessary. Yeah, so I guess this is the opening pitch to my colleagues in the legislature. Um in states like New York and Massachusetts, uh, the attorney general has affirmative statutory power uh, to take enforcement action under state and federal law to vindicate the civil rights of people living in our state. Now, we have a great, the oldest civil rights uh, organization and state instrumentality, uh, the oldest in the nation is the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities. Now, the CHRO uh, occupies both an investigatory and adjudicative functions, sort of a hybrid agency, um, whereas the attorney general is an enforcement agency and also has the resources and the people and the muscle. Um, and, and we see in New York and uh, in Massachusetts and elsewhere that those attorneys general are able to go out there and say, uh, you know, when there's pervasive discrimination, for example, in housing or um, in the employment market or if... Uh, our friends and neighbors in the LGBTQ plus community are targeted um, in the private sector. The attorney general should be able to stand up and fight for them and fight for the people of this state. I think that's what it means to be an advocate. That's what it means to be the people's lawyer and to be the first and the last line of defense for our way of life here in Connecticut. Uh, while you were campaigning, did you hear from state residents that this was something that they wanted uh, the state uh, AG's office to have the authority to uh, do more? Often. And, and frankly, as we go through this transition process, the most that I hear uh, uh, about from our applicants is I'd like to come work for the attorney general's office and I'd like to lead or be staffed in the civil rights division. And I sometimes have to explain to them, well, you got to talk to the speaker uh, and and the legislative leadership first because they've got to create the civil rights division first or, or help us do that. But um, subject to that chicken and egg problem, we'd love to have you help us 
um, enforce the civil rights and liberties of people here in Connecticut. Uh, what about uh, this longstanding uh, problem that uh, uh, homeowners in central and eastern Connecticut are experiencing these crumbling foundations? What can the state AG's office do to help them get some kind of financial remedy? So I spent a good deal of time, um, not just as a candidate, but as a legislator, helping to put together um, the surcharge that we have uh, to fund what is generally described as a captive insurance company to provide grants to homeowners in need. Um, I think we all agree that's the tip of the iceberg. And as state attorney general, I've said the very first week, I'm going to sit down with many of the families I've already visited at their homes. Um, It's heart-wrenching to take a tour of somebody's home and to see the cracks in their foundation uh, and to see how their foundation maybe has been dug out and replaced. um, And knowing that this is that family's biggest financial asset, right? All of their lives and their savings and their hopes and their dreams are wrapped up into that into that home and what it represents to their financial security. And so what I pledge to them is that the attorney general and the attorney general's office will do everything that we can, whether that's under the Connecticut Unfair Trade Practices Act, whether that's under the Connecticut Unfair Insurance Practices Act. Uh, I look forward to working with Governor Lamont uh, and his team and his commissioners. Um, and, and so the answer is, you know, what can you do? Everything we can. That's the answer. Earlier, we were talking about uh, New York State and California attorney general uh, general is often getting a lot of attention. They've got big offices. Um, when you look at the staff that you have, is this something that you hope to grow in terms of uh, the assistant AGs that are working on these cases? Uh, you know, as as General Zeller said and, and Professor Nolet said, Connecticut is very confident in its reputation uh, among the states. And I think that's why they look to us for leadership. Uh, We could always use more people. The attorney general's office returns far more to the state and the state budget than we cost. And so, sure, we could use more help. How many more? (laughs) 10, 20. (laughs) And you you were a longtime uh, legislator, also chair of the Judiciary Committee. And this is a Democratic uh, majority legislature, so that can only help you. It can. I hope they're listening right now. you know, I have great friends in the legislature, and as I said during the campaign, it's it's not just the attorney general's job to practice the law, but also to help change it. And I look forward to working. And I've said the you know the speaker and the majority leader in the House because I'm a House member, but all the legislative legislative leaders, uh, the minority leader in the House, the Senate president, the Senate Republican leader. Um, all of them good friends, all of them capable leaders, and I look forward to continuing to work with them as I have for 12 years. Well, I want to thank uh, William Tong again, Connecticut Attorney General-elect, who's also nursing a cold. Thanks yeah, anyway sorry. for joining us today uh, here on Where We Live. Today's show produced by Scott Breedy. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, Where We Live brings you conversations every day to help explain what's happening in our state as well as our country and our world. Please support this program and WNPR with a pledge during our end-of-the-year membership campaign. Here's the number to call, 888-900-3393.